Now, that brings us to the last chapter, 27. Vows and tithes. And many people have said, this is a weird way to end the book. And you, every covenant ends with these cursings and blessings, and you kind of have this final climax, and all of a sudden God's like, oh, okay, let's talk about vows. And you're like, what? Well, some scholars have said that maybe these vows and tithes are put here at the end to rather than end on the blessings and cursings, God is ending on the importance of their vow to God. Because this whole thing is about their vow to obey God. And so God is ending on the note of take your vows seriously. Now, something you need to understand, God never, ever, ever, ever forbid vows or oaths. This is a misunderstanding in the church. I've heard a lot of pastors teach, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and God does not allow you to take vows. We should just be able to trust you. If you say yes, then you should mean it. If you say no, you should mean it. But no vows. That's a sin against God. Well, your relationship with God is a vow. Your relationship with your spouse is a vow. And technically, when I say, yes, I'll do it, isn't that a vow? God is not ever, ever forbidding vows. What he forbids is rash vows. The, 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 the I'm not thinking and I just make a vow. When we get to the book of Judges, you'll see rash vows. The, the second half of Judges is just people making vows without thinking and then huge consequences happen as a result of it. That's what he's, he's like. When you, what he's saying here is when you make a vow, you better mean it. And if you mean it, then it's not rash. And that's, what, that's the first thing he says about vows. Think through your commitments carefully. Understanding that if you vow yourself to anybody, this shouldn't be an emotional, I'm about ready to die, I promise you, God, that I'll repent and dedicate my life to you. This shouldn't be anything that you haven't thought through. This should be something that you've seriously spent time praying, you've, vowed, you've thought through, and you know exactly what this is, what, the, what, what is this vow supposed to accomplish? And then you make your vow. The second thing that God is warning against on vows is don't swear in the name of something. Like, I swear to God, or I, I swear in my mother's grave. Because, one, if you're going to swear by those things, you're lifting those up as a high authority. I always thought that was weird. My mother's grave. What authority does it have? Like, that's like your mother is either wow powerful or that's really creepy and scary and weird. <laughs> but what you're saying by that is I'm not trustworthy enough to just say you can trust me. I've got to appease to something else. Does that kind of make sense? Like if I swear my mother's grave, that means like if I just said I swear I'll do it, then somebody should say, okay, that's good for me. But they're like, I don't know. And you're like, well, I swear to God, may you kill me. Or I swear my mother's grave. And they're like, oh, okay, now I believe you. Why couldn't I just believe you? Why did I have to go to something else? That's what God is really forbidding in vows. He's not forbidding the taking of vows. This covenant that they've just made is a vow. What he's forbidding is you not thinking through your vow before you commit it. Therefore, it's not really important to you because you just kind of threw it out there emotionally or that nobody will believe you until you swear by something else. 
because you've earned the reputation that you can't be trusted. I should be able to just say, I swear I will do it because I've thought through this and it's important to me and I have such a reputation of that that that's good enough for you. And everybody should be able to say that is good enough for me because I know who you are. You're a thoughtful human who thinks things through and you follow through. And when you don't, well, we understand why you didn't. Like your mom died or something like that and something you couldn't control just got in the way. But you did everything you could. That's what God is saying. He's not forbidding vows. He's forbidding the irrationalness of it or the emotionalness of it or the bad reputation that you have to swear to something else in order to make your word valid. And so that's what he goes through in this chapter is make sure that when you vow things to God or tie them, then you mean it and you've thought through it and you're going to be committed. The other thing that he does is he talks about what it means to vow. You can vow your son to service to God, like Hannah does. She dedicates Samuel to serve God as a Nazarite. You can dedicate your house to God to be used in some kind of way. You can give your money to God, which we, we call a tithe. You can ser- dedicate your animal. And he goes through all these different things. That this is what it means to vow an animal, a house, a human, your own life, whatever to God. In fact, the book of Numbers is going to talk about the Nazarite. And the Nazarite is you vowing your life to God for a certain amount of months or years. Then what God does at this, he then goes through how serious it is to break the vow. And if you break the vow, if you dedicate your life or your life for either your entire life or just a certain amount of months or years, he says that you have to pay 50 shekels and sacrifice a series of animals. The, the average worker makes about one shekel a month. So that's 12 shackles, shackles, 12 shekels in one year. So if you had to pay 50 shekels, if you break your vow of dedication to God, that's a lot of money. That's like hundreds of thousands of dollars for us in today's society. So what God is trying to say is like, if you break this vow, God expects you to pay this. And what this does is is it makes you think about your vow very seriously before you commit it. Like, wow, like if I'm going to dedicate myself to God to serve him for the next two years, if I break that, I've got to pay 50 shekels. Maybe I should really sit down and think about this one and pray and maybe even bring some like people that I know and know me very well to say, is this something that actually is reasonable for me to get the advice of other people? If I'm going to dedicate my animal and I decide, oh, no, I actually need it this month, God. Like one of my donkeys just died and I can't get the work on the farm done without this donkey. I'm going to take it back. You're going to have to sacrifice like two bulls and a goat and that kind of stuff. It's like, wow, is that really worth it? You get your donkey back, but you just lost an ox and a goat and a lamb. And, a... and what God is doing is by putting really steep prices on if you break your vow, You have to do this in order to become clean so that you can enter the tabernacle, so that you can actually be in the presence of God. Then you really better think through your vows seriously. And that's all that God is doing on vows. He's saying that I want you to be people of your word because you 
tell the truth about God. And if you're not people of your word, then you're not telling the truth of God. And so when you make a commitment to dedicate your entire life to God through the Mosaic Covenant, you better honor that covenant because the whole world is looking at you and saying that's what God is like. When you make a covenant to honor, to love, and cherish your spouse for better or for worse, till death do us part, that's a vow that you made. For better or for worse, till death do us part. Your vow is serious. And look, we don't have to sacrifice animals today if we get divorced. But don't think that there aren't other things we're sacrificing. Because we now know today that maybe we're not under a sacrificial system now where we have to go to the temple and pay thousands of dollars and that kind of stuff. But we do know that the court case to get divorced is financially draining. We know what it does to our children when we get divorced. I mean, I know parents who've literally lost their children the rest of their life. Because, I mean, that's the one thing about being a high school teacher. You want to know what divorce does to kids? Be a high school teacher and live with them every single day and listen to the way that they talk about their parents and how broken and how hurt and how some of them won't ever talk to their dad or their mother ever, ever again. And we got a kid that can barely perform academically because of what he's dealing with with his own father and the fact that he walked out. We're sacrificing. There is still a sacrifice involved when you break vows. And it may not be an animal or financial in the way that we think of here, but it will be somewhere. And we don't think that stuff through, that when you're standing up there pledging your life to this person, that there are going to be serious consequences if you decide to walk away. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you've ever gotten divorced or that kind of stuff, because that's no different than any other sin, and God does redeem you. But redemption doesn't take consequences away. And redemption doesn't take baggage away. And unfortunately, our sins also affect our children. And we heap a whole bunch of baggage on them. And they had nothing to do with it. And this is all God is trying to say. When you make vows, think it through. Make sure you know what you are doing. And make sure you're actually prepared for better or for worse, to stay committed to it. Because if you break it, you're going to bring serious consequences into your community and you're going to spend the rest of your life paying for that and may never, ever, ever get what you lost back. And your life is supposed to tell the truth about God and you just reflected an inaccurate picture of who Yahweh is because he never, ever breaks his promises. Because Timothy says he's faithful even to the people who are not faithful to him. And this is why even Jesus said about our salvation, Jesus says, look, no man goes into battle without first looking at the enemy and looking at all of his defenses and figuring out whether he really can truly take that enemy before he enters into battle. And nobody builds a tower without first counting the costs and asking, does he really truly have the financial wealth to build that tower and sustain it and follow through? So you don't commit yourself to me as a son of man unless you've thought through it. I don't want an emotional, I love you, Jesus, I'm going to accept you and give the rest of my life because some music or song swayed you that morning. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. 
Because those things can lead you into, wow, this God's amazing. I've never experienced this before. But then you should think about, like, is this really truly experience I'm experiencing? Is this something that I really want to make my life a part of? Am I willing to pay the discipleship cost in order to experience this relationship with God? Because that's the problem with America, is we've emotionally gotten a lot of people into the kingdom of God. And then when they get in the kingdom of God and they're expected to obey, then they're like, I don't want to do that. And we have lots of disobedient, apathetic Christians in the church because we emotionally got them in. Is emotions important? Yes. I'm a Christian because I had an emotional experience with God and I continue to have an emotional experience with God. But I'm also a Christian because I know what's expected of me in the kingdom of God. And I don't always do it. (laughs) And I know that that's not good and I pay the price for it. There's expectations. See, it's not emotional, it's not factual, and it's not obedience. It's all of it. And so the question that Christ is saying is, when you accept me, do you know exactly what you're getting into? Do not accept me if you haven't read all the fine print yet. And not that God plays that game, but sometimes as Christians we play that game when we're evangelizing to people. We gave a really emotional sermon about God loving you in the song, and it wasn't until later after they accepted Christ, they were like, oh yeah, there's that like whole obedience thing. When you get married, are you thinking it through? If you make a commitment to your children, are you thinking it through? If you're making a commitment to people at work, are you thinking it through? When you commit to something in a raise or something like that, are you going to your family and really sitting down like, what will this raise and this job position in my job do to our family? Am I willing to make a vow to my boss that I will do this? When I make vows to the church, yes, I'll do that homeless thing. Or yes, I will go sing in the, the, the nursing homes and stuff. Am I really thinking through seriously, how is this going to affect my family? How is this going to affect my job? How is this going to affect my devotional life? Is it a very good thing to serve the homeless? Yes. But is that a vow that I really, truly can make, given the vows that I've made other places? Will I end up dishonoring a vow somewhere else in the desperate attempt to keep this vow? Does that make sense? And that's what God is always calling you to is saying, when you make vows, I take these seriously. Because the main thing about God is his faithfulness. And sometimes it's okay to say, I can't do that. As good and as noble as that is, and even if I'm the best man for it or the best woman for it, because I can't be faithful to this and those, something is going to be sacrificed. Because I know myself well enough, and when I don't, I have other people in my life that know me well enough that speak into that. And that's why we're very guilty in churches of saying, yes, 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 because we're afraid that people will be offended or afraid that we're not doing enough in the church. You're making vows that you're breaking. And there's consequences. The other thing you need to consider is what do you need to get an A in your life and what things are okay to get a C in life? Mm -hmm. I remember my professors telling us in seminary, he's like, those of you who are single right now, which was me, he's like, this is your life. You should get an A. 
Now he's like, I understand if you have learning disabilities or that kind of stuff, you're trying hardest, you can't. But, but then he looked at all the people who were married with kids, and he says, you have made a vow to get an A in your marriage and with your kids. That's the most important thing. For you, if getting a C in your classes is what it takes to have an A as a father and a husband or a wife, then a C is an A in my book. And he says, you've got to consider your priorities. Yes, you've made a vow to do seminary, but you only need a C to graduate. And grades don't always reflect what you know. And sometimes you might have to sacrifice knowing a few things so that you can know your children and your spouse better. And so there's different times in our life that certain things may not get A's because other things are more important. And I've never, ever, ever forgotten what he said. That was the first day of class, the first day of seminary. He just looked at us and said, it's okay to get C's in some things in your life. And God will honor that as if it's an A in the kingdom of God because you weighed your priorities like they were supposed to be weighed. And so don't feel this pressure to say yes to everything and don't feel a pressure that you have to get an A in everything in life. You be faithful to what God has given you. Period. And there are priorities of vows. God, family, church, everything else. And so this is what God ends Leviticus on. I want you to be committed to me. And if you're not committed, the consequences are huge. But if you are committed, even if you fail, there's a sacrificial system in place to make you right with God again. Because those who love God are blameless, meaning they do everything in their power to honor their vows to God and others. And when they do screw up, it bothers them so much that they immediately repent and get themselves clean and right with God. And yes, we may have to do that over and over and over and over again until Christ comes the first time and then the second. But as long as you're doing everything you can to live obediently and repent when you don't, because repentance is obedience too, then that's what it means to make your vows true. And so this is what God is saying about Leviticus. So, Leviticus. Genesis and Exodus taught us that God was sovereign and relational. Those books really pounded into you that this is the all-powerful God that can do anything. Create the world, create a nation, bring them out of exile, bring them out of Sinai, the plagues of deliverance. But he was also relational because he kept pursuing them and pursuing them. And he was faithful to them even when they weren't faithful to him. And he gave them the name Yahweh, which means I am the ever-present helper who is always with you. And he really pounded those two things in. I'm sovereign and I'm relational. When we get to Leviticus, he really is pounding in the two ideas that he's also righteous and holy. That even though he's relational, don't think he's like that buddy-buddy best friend that you can just hang out with. He's also a righteous God. That righteousness is important to him. And when you're not righteous, there are serious consequences because he's unlike anything that you've ever experienced in the entire universe. And if you dedicate and vow your life to him, he will make you unlike anything else that the world has ever seen. 
and use you away that's unlike everything else. And so Leviticus makes it very clear what sin is and what it does to your life. This is the consequences of breaking vows. This is the consequences of when you sin, the sacrificial system. This is the consequence when you don't sacrifice in the temple the way that you're supposed to and fire comes down. Because you're just sinners in general, you have to do the Day of Atonement. Sin is serious. And we've lost that as Americans. Sin is serious. And there's serious consequences. And that's what he's trying to communicate. No matter how sovereign I am, no matter how relational I am, no matter how much I love you and how much I'm willing to forgive you, and I will move heaven and earth to forgive you, there are still consequences to sin because sin is a horrible, evil, violent, abhorrent thing that makes me want to puke, as in the book of Revelation. And God is trying to communicate that. And so this is seen with the golden calf. No matter how much God forgave them, and no matter how much he was faithful to them, they still lost the right to enter his presence. And so Exodus ends with Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle as Israel's representative. They're unclean. God forgave them. He was faithful, but he also abhors sin. And he can't have that. So the whole book of Leviticus is how do I become clean so that I can enter the presence of God and worship him and then exit the tabernacle and live a clean life in the world. And so climax is in the Day of Atonement where they finally are able to become clean. And then God ends Leviticus emphasizing what it really truly means to be with him, committed to him, and faithful to him in the same way that he's faithful to you. Meaning that becoming clean is not a one-time thing. This is something you should be committed to on a daily basis constantly coming before God, confessing and repenting of your sins, saying, I value this vow that I've made to you, and I'm willing to do anything to be right with you because I love you. And I can't think of anywhere else to be in the world than in your arms because you're the only God that controls the entire universe and the only God that ever loved me enough to save me. That's why I want to be clean. That's why I want to honor my vow. And so when we start the book of Numbers, Numbers begins with God spoke to Moses from or in the tabernacle. Israel is now able to enter the tabernacle because they're clean. And that's what Leviticus is trying to communicate. Is that you're saying that honoring this vow, becoming clean, being right with God, righteousness, is incredibly important to me. That I'm going to take this seriously. The details matter to me. The festivals matter to me. In fact, they bring me joy because I love resting in God and serving God because he is the only true God and the only God that ever truly saved me. It's not the legalism. It's how do I love God because I want to. That's Leviticus. So I hope this is beneficial. I hope you have a better appreciation for Leviticus. It's still some parts are hard to get through, even when you know it, but hopefully you understand that this isn't just a whole bunch of laws. It's like, oh my gosh. But there is a rhyme. There is a meaning to all this kind of stuff. Yahweh, we just praise you so much for who you are. We praise you for the amazing God that you are. We thank you that you are a God that is absolutely sovereign and relational that you're completely transcendent and separate from creation, but intimately involved. 
that you're a righteous, holy God that hates sin, but a God that's also willing to sacrifice everything for us despite our sin. A God that demands us to be holy, but the God that's also patient with us when we're not. So many things about you seem contradictory of how any being could be both this and that simultaneously. But it's because you are God and you are complex and you're unfathomable and you're indescribable. And we thank you that you have chosen to make yourself known to us through your word and you've chosen to come next to our side to walk with us and you've chosen to do what we cannot do ourselves and that is to cleanse us of our sins so we can enter your presence and worship and dwell with you. I pray that you would just press this amazing truth into our lives so powerfully that we are just overwhelmed with love and appreciation for you and that it would pour out into others. In Jesus' name, amen.